We, we all are using various forms of communication in the day in which we live, are we not? How, how many people own a cell phone? Don't want to exclude anybody, but you know, a large percentage of us do. How many uh, have email of some variety? Yes. Facebook users? If you're not uh, a friend of Coast Community yet, look it up. You can become uh, a friend of our church. Uh, how many uh, Twitters, tweeters? We have any of those? We, got, we have a few Twitter, Twitter folks, a few tweeters. And uh, any blog? Got, got a few bloggers. Yes. Some bloggers in the house. There's a community blog, uh, Coast Community blog as well that we've linked to some of you for that. So uh, if you have a blog and you like it to be linked from our church one, then let me know. If you want to remain completely uh, far away from the church blog, you can do that as well. But um, all these different forms of communication emerging. And in the midst of that, we know there's been uh, one, at least one casualty, and that is the United States postal system. Right? And uh, I mean, they're not dead yet. Praise God. Doug Doherty, a faithful employee. And Doug, Doug's worked for the Postal Service for 30 plus years and uh, a tribute and, and no disparagement at all against the USPS. But uh, they lost $3.8 billion last year. That's uh, the, the sad facts. And and uh, so they're, you know, they're, they're having a hard time finding their way in, in the midst of these emerging forms of communication. And yet I read this article a couple of weeks ago uh, uh, that, that noted that there is one significant booster for the United States Postal Service, and that is Hollywood. And in fact, in recent months, there have been several movies that have come out that have had letter writing at the center of this, the storyline of, of these particular movies. And, and so this writer was talking about this, this theme and this, uh, this kind of interesting thing that was going on. And he said this, It was just a few years ago when the college board decided to add a written section to the SAT that some people wondered, do high school students still write with pencils? You know, do they even know what a pencil is? I mean, it's all digital, right? And, and then he goes on to say this, what really caught my attention Letters take us back to a time when we were careful about the printed word. When you write on paper, he says, it's a permanent declaration. Which is why, he concludes, so many people save letters and why so many of us quickly delete emails. Right? You've got a stack, perhaps, of, of old letters you've received, but the emails are just quickly deleted. Well, we're starting a new service, our new uh, series of messages today uh, on the book, uh, on the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. And we're simply titling it, Dear Church. These are the words that Jesus himself said and is saying to the church today, quoted by Jesus, written down by John, most likely John the Apostle, and these are letters to, uh, to, to the specific churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, but really to the church universal. Because the issues and the challenges and the joys and the victories that the churches face that we'll be uh, looking at in the next several weeks are the same ones that have been faced by churches in every era and in every age, including our own. They're the same issues that churches like us face even today. And they are letters in which Jesus was very careful to communicate words of affirmation, 
words of correction to his people. And they are letters in which he offers several, as that author wrote, permanent declarations as to the church and what should be its passions and its purposes and its priorities. Now, some of you perhaps have done a little study or a little research or you know a little bit about these letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And there have been lots of different theories offered over the the years as to the kind of prophetic significance of, of these seven letters. One suggests that they foretell the characteristics and the qualities of the Christian church that that would emerge in future eras or generations throughout seven different kind of periods of time, concluding with our own. Uh, This is one kind of way of thinking about it. And yet, I want to suggest this, that amid all the vivid and graphic language of the book of Revelation, some of you have studied it, You have your own ideas, perhaps, about what it all means. Amid all the symbols and the metaphors and the the visions and the images, I want to suggest that more likely than some prophetic, significant uh, understanding of these letters that maybe we can't completely grasp, I want to suggest that these are simply clear words from Jesus that do not need to be carefully interpreted and applied in uh, ways that might seem a little bit different than what we would normally do. Words that are clear to the church in terms of how we are to persevere in the midst of difficult times and in how we are to keep from being influenced and acclimating to a culture that is all around us, pulling us and pushing us in its different directions. So it seems that these letters are worth saving, that these letters are worth studying, that these letters are worth reading and applying to our lives as we think about what it means to be the church. And it seems especially fitting that in this 50th year of our local church that we would, as we will read in these these letters, that we would have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying, what Jesus is saying to the church, to our church, to us in this place and in this day, uh, as he continues to do his work in and through us. So, I want you just to pray for a moment, and then we'll dig right in. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. And we come to it humbly. We come to it with, with open hearts and with open minds. We come to it not just as individuals, but we come to it as a community of faith here today, eager to allow it to shape our hearts, to shape our lives, and to shape the way in which we relate to one another and to the world around us. Have your way in these moments, dear Jesus. Speak to our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Book of Revelation, chapter 2. And I want to just dive right in here. If you have your Bible, you can turn there with me. Book of Revelation, it's the last one in the Bible. So you turn to the end and then work your way back to chapter 2. Would you stand with me as I read this? If you don't have your Bible, you can just look on the screen here. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'll read it for us. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. And again, these words are in red. These are the words of Jesus. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. 
that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Wonder if you've thought about your personality lately. Have you done any self-personality analysis? Have you taken some of those tests that help you to ana- analyze your personality? There's different ways of thinking about your personality, your, your, just your personhood. It's what makes you a person. Uh, a simple definition is just the, those, those behavioral or uh, emotional characteristics of a person. That's what makes up their personality. And we would all have to admit, most likely here today, that we have some characteristics of our personality that are good ones, positive, and we have some areas or aspects of our personality that are needing improvement. And then we have some aspects of our personality that are what are known as personality quirks, right? Just Maybe you don't have any personality quirks. I do this from time to time. Just look around at the people around you. They have personality quirks. You don't have any. Nobody's looking at you. Better not be looking at me. All right. Right? We, we each have good and bad and, and some quirks that go along with it. I want to suggest to us this morning that churches have personalities as well. We have these behavioral and emotional and spiritual characteristics that emerge as we come together in community. As we share values, as we share experiences, as we share practices, there are these personalities that are emerging among us as a church. And in turn, these personalities, as they do in our own lives, these personalities begin to shape the direction of our church. They begin to shape the way that we, that we act, the, the, the spiritual climate, the attitude that we have. And these personalities can be shaped by any number of things by even the kind of buildings that we worship in, by the style of leadership that there is in a church, by the way we handle conflict, a number of things can help shape those personalities within a church. You might think of it this way, though. Uh, maybe this will be a little bit more helpful to us. Think of a, of a team that you really like or a school that you went to or that you go to. When we talk about that personality of a team or a school, we call it school spirit, Right? And some of you Laker fans are feeling your team spirit today and, and cheering them on. Uh, there's a, you know, we, we have a, an allegiance. We have a, there's a spirit that arises within that school and within that team in the same way that there's a spirit or a personality that arises within a church. And the interesting thing about that is if there's negative or bad team spirit, then that results in a losing season, right? If there's negative or bad spirit in the church then that results in a loss to the kingdom and a loss for eternity. So I want, to think, I want us to think about these, these, uh, these personalities because no doubt we at Coast Community have our own personality. It has been in the making for 50 years. It's been shaping and shifting and becoming what it is today. 
And we would all have to admit that there's some good and probably some bad. And look around again, some quirks, right? Uh, among our own community personality here as a church or the spirit. Well, I want to suggest that it's these personalities or these spirits that Jesus is referring to when he tells John to speak to the so-called angels of the churches in Revelation. When he says, write to the angel of the church of Ephesus, what many contemporary scholars are suggesting is that he's telling him to write to that personality, to write to that spirit, to write to that essence of that church body. Instead of writing to a single overseer or pastor of that local congregation, or instead of writing to the divinely appointed guardian angel, as has been understood for many years, what Jesus seems to really be getting at is, here is to, to speak to the broader community. Not just to speak to one person, but to speak to the broader community, to share these, these corrections and these commendations and these motivations, not just to a collection of individuals but to one community of faith. So when Jesus is speaking here, let's remember that He's speaking to the Spirit, that He's speaking to the essence, that He's speaking to the personality, perhaps, of that church. And it is Jesus who has the right to speak to the church in this way. It is Jesus alone who has the right to speak. You know, you don't like people criticizing your personality, right? Or evaluating it. But Jesus has the right to speak to the church in this way. To analyze and evaluate and give us feedback as to the personality that is growing out of who we are. And, and it's, it says right here that, that he holds the seven stars in his hand. And that he walks among the seven golden lampstands. And maybe as soon as I read that, some of you were like, oh, great, here we go, revelation, stars and lampstands, and how are we supposed to understand this? But this is an easy one. I want to tell you, this is an easy one. Because if you look back into chapter 1, just like one verse back, chapter 1, verse 20, at the end of it, it reads this. And I think this will be on the screen. It says this, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. We like that. He's telling us exactly what it is. So when it says that Jesus holds the seven stars in his hand, these are the seven angels. So Jesus holds what? The spirit of every church in his hands. He knows the spirit. He knows the personality of every church. He knows our essence. He knows the essence of the universal church, and he knows the essence of every single local church. And then it says, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So when it says Jesus is walking among the seven lampstands, it simply means that Jesus is not some absent landlord. He is not one who established the church and then left it on its own, kind of wishing it good luck. I hope that works out for you. No, Jesus walks among his churches. He is walking among our church, even here this morning. I picture a farmer walking through his fields, evaluating every crop, sorting through it, looking to see that it's healthy. Or a manager, perhaps, walking through her factories and saying, is every machine well-oiled? Is it working as it should? Here's Jesus walking among his churches, holding the essence of every church in his hands. He has the right to speak to the church of Ephesus and to our church and to every church as he does in these verses. There is no pulling the wool 
over Jesus when it comes to being the church. There's no pretending. There's no playing. There's no acting like we're doing this or that. He knows who we are. He knows who we're becoming. He holds the stars in His hand and He walks among the churches. So here He is to the church in Ephesus and to us. And He begins with speaking these great words of commendation, these words of affirmation for their spirit of perseverance. I hope you heard them. And their spirit of hard work. He said it, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. These folks apparently had toiled to the point of exhaustion, working for the kingdom. They had proven themselves to be devoted in their defending of the faith. So much so that they were well known for weeding out those false teachers that had come their way. That were trying to infiltrate the church and fill it with teaching that was unbiblical and false. The, the, the church had, had been one of the real bright spots. The church in Ephesus had been one of the real bright spots in the Christian story to this point. The Apostle Paul himself had founded this church back in the 60s. Not the 1960s. The, the 60s. Like zero 60s. And uh, he had founded this church and built it upon Jesus Christ. And then he'd left it for a while and left it under the care of uh, Priscilla and Aquila, these, these two that we read about in the book of Acts. And, and then he came back on his second missionary journey, we're told the Apostle Paul did. And, and he used Ephesus and the church there in the city there as kind of his, his home base for about two, two and a half years. And he went out and he did ministry and he stayed there and he taught the people and he raised up the leaders. This church was on solid ground. And it's very interesting in chapter 20 of the book of Acts, we read some interesting words from the Apostle Paul as he got ready to, to leave Ephesus. He encourages, he, this is farewell address to the Ephesian leaders, the, church, the leaders of the church there. And he encourages them in Acts 20, he says this, be, be shepherds of the church of God. It's not this one. Be shepherds of the church of God, he said, which he bought with his own blood. Be shepherds. Be shepherds, because then this, he concluded that verse by saying, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. What appears to be is that what Paul had projected in the 60s had now come to fruition in the 80s and in the 90s when the book of Revelation was most likely written. And, and those savage wolves had come into the church. And now this second generation of believers in Ephesus was taking very clear the command that Paul had given them to be shepherds of the church as much as serious as, as any of those in the first generation of believers had done. They were vigilant defenders of the faith. They, they would do whatever it took. They were the moral majority and the focus on the family wrapped up into one. I mean, they, they were just not messing around, not allowing anything to seep into the church in, in these days. Even this, 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 uh, this, this sect, this cult, the Nicolaitans, that not a lot is understood of, but most likely a Gnostic sect, the, those, those folks that twisted the Christian scriptures and made it into this idea that, that, what it, that there's a separation between what is spiritual and what is physical. And the spiritual is all that really matters. So what we do with our physical 
doesn't matter at all. So we can engage in all sorts of sin, all sorts of sexual immorality, all sorts of debauchery, no matter what it is, because our spirits are all that matters. John the Revelator, through Jesus, is saying, you have not allowed these folks to get into the church. Good for you. They, they were living in a major city. Ephesus was a significant port, a major trade route. And in this city, no doubt, people were coming through all the time who had all sorts of various systems of belief, all sorts of twists on the Christian faith, all sorts of different religious ideas that they would want to share and expound. And again, Jesus says, I know, I know your deeds. I know what you've done. This is a world the Ephesians lived in. And they had shown themselves to be shepherds of the flock, defenders of the faith, guardians of the moral and theological foundation of the church. I don't want to tell us right here that, uh, that, that this, our invitation as people is to be no less lax in our own defending of the faith. All right? As a church community, we have held strong for 50 years. None of us actually have been here 50 years, but some, some of us very close. But we've held strong as a church for 50 years in the midst of a rather hostile environment. If you're not aware of this fact, we, we do not live in the Bible Belt. Did you know that? Did you know that? All right. Just in case you weren't aware, we do not live in the Bible Belt. Uh, we live in a bit of a hostile culture ourselves. In this wonderful, beautiful city, there, there is still some hostility towards the Christian church. Jesus knows our deeds. He's holding us in, our, in His hand. He's walking among us. He knows our deeds. He knows the deeds of those who have come before us in these 50 years. He knows our hard work and our perseverance. And the future will require no less of us, my friends. No less of us. In our day, there are many systems of belief that run contrary to the Christian church. There are all sorts of ideas floating around. Uh, secularism, the, the, the false prophets of secularism and New Ageism and, and, uh, and, and scientism, as well as those who would twist the view of, of the teaching of Jesus. They prevail all around us. And we must be careful to know what we believe and to live within the boundaries of those beliefs without a doubt. And yet, Jesus doesn't stop there with the church of Ephesus, and neither does he stop with us. For it appears that somewhere along the way for this church in Ephesus, somewhere along this journey, somewhere along this process of fending off these attacks against their faith, they had forgotten exactly what it was that they were fighting for. Have you ever had that happen to you? Have you ever been around kids who are getting into an argument? We'll just blame the kids because this never happens to adults, right? Have you ever been in a conversation with your spouse? Have you ever had a slight discussion with a, a, an associate, a friend, where it begins to debate or argue over a certain issue or topic or matter and, and, and hopefully it doesn't get physical, but at least it's verbal and and before, with my kids, sometimes it gets physical. But uh, before long, you're, you're debating and you're arguing and you're fighting and you have forgotten what it was that you were initially fighting even about. The primary issue is no longer what it was that you were fighting about. It's just that you're fighting. Oh, you want to fight? Okay, we'll fight. 
right? And, and it's no longer the issue. It's been forgotten. I don't even remember what it was, but I sure like fighting. And we do this time and time again. And it appears this is exactly what the church in Ephesus had done. They, had, they were fighters, defenders of the faith. And they had been fighting so hard and for so long that it appears that they had forgotten what it was that they were fighting for. Jesus says that is what had happened to the spirit of the Ephesian church. That in their zeal for moral and theological purity, these folks had lost sight of their highest and most important calling. They were losing sight of love. They were losing sight. They were forsaking, as he says, their first love. Some say that in their, in their effort to expose the imposters, in their effort to denounce every false teacher, they had created an atmosphere or an environment of suspicion, an environment of judgment in that place that had caused the glow of their love for God and for others to simply fade away. And Jesus says, I have this against you. I don't know that anybody wants to have Jesus have something against you. And so we listen. They, they were fighting the fight. They'd forgotten what they were fighting for. They lost their first love. Their spirit had grown cold in loving God with all their hearts and loving God with all our minds and loving God with all of our souls. This is what they had forgotten. And this is what Jesus was calling them back to. William Barclay is a great uh, commentator and writer, and, and he put it this way in his, I can just kind of almost hear his British accent, perhaps, as he wrote, wrote this, as he would say this, but he, wrote, he writes, the eagerness to root out all mistaken men had ended in a sour and rigid orthodoxy. How easy this is to have happen in the church. How often have we seen people who were originally sparked into faith, not by a list of rules and regulations, but by the very love of God felt so deeply in their hearts and in their souls. How often do we see these very same people become bitter and judgmental? How, uh, how often we've seen communities of faith originally based on love and forgiveness and life and hope and holiness turned into communities of criticism and negativity and bitterness and ultimately division. Some of us have been a part of communities perhaps like that. And we know stories. And, and, the, and the real tragedy is the number of people who have been pushed away from Jesus as a result of communities of faith exhibiting this spirit, this angel. And so here's Jesus. He's saying to the Ephesians, he's saying, it is not too late. I have this against you, but there's still time. Remember the heights 
from which you have fallen. And when I read that, I, I just thought, well, it's how like me and perhaps like us when he says to remember the heights from which we've fallen, just to think about how far we've fallen, right? We really have fallen. And yet what Jesus is saying, don't remember the heights from which you've fallen so you can just think about how bad you are. Remember the heights from which you've fallen because that is the place that I'm calling you to return. That is the height of love for God this, and love for others that is to be your first love that I'm inviting you, Jesus says, to return and to live at all your days as a church community. The invitation, again, is to make first things first. To make this love for God and love for others the first and greatest priority in their life as a community. Sometimes the only way to move forward is to look back and to learn and to remember. Jesus is calling them to remember. For spouses, again, perhaps even today in the midst of a, a, a great conflict or trying time, sometimes the best thing to do is to remember back to a time when you actually loved one another, when you actually had feelings of warmth and care and compassion for one another and to believe that once again we can return to that place. Think about uh, parents of teenagers. Bless the teenagers among us. But maybe there's some parents here today whose buttons have been being pushed a little bit and whose teenagers have been pushing the limits just a little bit. Not that they do that all the time, but from time to time. And perhaps there are some parents of teenagers who just need to simply remember a time Oh, maybe getting a little amen from certain sections. Uh, <laughs> the parents who need to remember a time when there was this, when they had this love and this warmth of relationship between themselves and their child. And to let that memory of love rekindle a present and current and living love. Perhaps it's the other way around. Maybe there's some children whose parents, as they're getting maybe a little older, I don't know if my parents are going to listen to this on the internet, but uh, as they're getting a little older, perhaps, and getting a little more set in their ways, a little harder to relate to, a little more difficult to communicate with, not so you know, open to new things, frustrated in terms of this communication, perhaps children like that need to simply remember a time when there's this relationship of care and love and compassion between them and their parents, and to allow that memory to rekindle within them a present, a current, a living love. Jesus seems to be saying the same thing to the Ephesians. You're so far off, he seems to be saying. You've missed it. You're forgetting. You've forsaken your first love. I have this against you, but you can remember. Remember a time. Remember the time, perhaps, when you've most felt the love of God stirring your hearts. I remember a time when I was in junior high, I was at a church camp, and at the end of the week, they served communion, and in that moment, I'll never forget it, I just, I was eating the bread and drinking the juice like I've done hundreds of times in my life, and in that moment, the love of God came so powerfully into my life, a, real, a realization of it. I remember when I was in college, sitting on a dock at my favorite lake in Idaho and looking out on the beauty of that place and, and recognizing all that God had provided for us and again just being overwhelmed, astounded by the depth of God's love for me. Amen. And in those moments, friends, I'll tell you, I told myself, James, never forget this time. 
never forget this moment, and I've never forgotten them. I think that's what Jesus is inviting the church then and the church now, to remember those times when as individuals and as a community we have so deeply experienced the love of God and allow those times to rekindle in us a fresh and a new and a living, a current love for God and for others. Jesus makes it clear that remembering and restoring the primacy of love is not simply an option for the church. It's not a divine good idea. Did you read what he said? He said, if you do not do this, I will come to you and I will take away your lampstand. What's the lampstand? The church. I will take away your churchness. You may continue to meet together. You may continue to gather together. You might continue to upkeep your buildings and things like that. But if there is not love, you will no longer be a church. Look at this, just this thought. Simply, um, when a church makes anything but love for God and for one another, its guiding principle, then that church ceases to be the church. Jesus just said, I'll take away your lampstand. It's not necessarily a threat. It's just a reality that where there's not love, where there's not this first love, then the church cannot exist. And so in the midst of 50 years and all that we've done and all the deeds, all the work, all the perseverance, all the faithfulness, all the good traits and the bad traits and the quirks among us. May our church never fall victim to the Ephesus Syndrome. It actually has a name among scholars. This Ephesus Syndrome where we become so preoccupied with defending and defining doctrinal and practical uh, boundaries that we cease to be stirred by the love of God and the love for people around us and lose sight of our primary mission, our primary passion of making disciples in the world. May we never find unity, as so many churches have, in our fear and in our defensive posture to the world. May we never gather, circle the wagons and and find this unity in our fear of what is going on out there. But rather, may we find unity, friends, for this year and for the next 50, however long God will give us, in our kindness and in our generosity and in our love. May we have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to Coast Community. May we have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to us, not just as a collection of individuals, but as a church. And how appropriate it is that we would uh, end this service by celebrating the Lord's Supper. We've brought a baby to Jesus. We've sung our praises to him. We've been reminded of our, his great love towards us and our call to be loving to him and to others. And how appropriate it is then to conclude our service really by centering in on that place and that time where perhaps the love of God is shown and demonstrated with its greatest intensity 
where the love of God is brought so focused into this event, the cross of Jesus Christ, his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. So our invitation today is as we pass the elements and each of you who are here today seeking after Jesus, some level in your heart, you are welcome to take of the bread and of the juice. And as we do, to take of it and to eat and to drink and in so doing to remember the grace of God poured out in His Son Jesus, the grace of God that is poured out on us even today. And to celebrate that love, but not only to celebrate it, but to be stirred by it. <laughs> to then, in return, love God with all that we have and love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you are the one who holds the seven stars in your hands. That you are the one who walks among the seven lampstands. That you are the one who has all authority to speak into the life of the church universal. Every church throughout history, in every age, in every era, in every location. And to speak with authority into our church today. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for, for being the Lord of this church for 50 years. For... for inspiring and empowering those, those first families that decided that there just needs to be a church of the Nazarene in this community. Let's start it in our house. And they moved around from location to location, three or four different places before finally finding this place. And, and we thank you for those throughout all the years who have fought so diligently for the faith and defended it and worked so hard and, and has sustained and grown and moved forward in that faith. We're so thankful for our heritage. And yet we recognize, Lord Jesus, that our heritage is all for naught unless we continue to live in it and move forward from it. And it's our desire simply today, oh God, to be the kind of people who are not defined by our boundary keeping, who are not defined by our defining rules and theological positions, who are not uh, so interested in separating ourselves and discussing what we are not <laughs> but rather who are people simply consumed with you from the inside out, responding to your amazing act of love poured out for us in Jesus with a love stirred in our own hearts returned to you and to those around us. And so today, as we celebrate communion, celebrate your supper, Lord Jesus, as we take of the bread and the cup, may we be so grabbed by your love that we would never be the same. So we remember that night when you were betrayed, Jesus, you took the bread as you gathered with your disciples and you blessed it and you broke it and you passed it to them and you said, this is my body broken for you. Take of it and eat. In the same way you took the cup and you blessed it and you passed it among them and you said, this is the cup of the new covenant of salvation. My blood shed for your salvation. Take of it and drink, and as often as you do, remember me. And so today, as we receive these elements again, Lord Jesus, we recognize ourselves not just as a collection of individuals, but as one body at one table with one Lord. May these elements have the power to speak truth and love into our hearts and into our lives. We thank you so much for this precious gift. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Son of God, shepherd.